Well, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, uh, welcome members of CBC and also guests. Uh, some of you might be here for the baptism that will be taking place after the service. Let me extend a welcome, a warm welcome to you as well. Let me invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4, we will be reading selectively, but not that selectively, uh, from chapters 4 and 5. Just by way of context here, this is an example of Old Testament narrative, describes Israel's history, and the rule of her third and wise king, King Solomon. Wise until the end, where some of the wisdom dissipates, but that's for another time. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, let's hear God's word together. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoref and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Uh, Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram was the son of Abda. The son of Abda was in charge of the forced labor. Now jump down to verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the, from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one, for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than other men, all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. And Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom." Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when they heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put uh, put them under the soles of his feet. 
But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversity nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent me. I am ready to do all your desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two made a treaty. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are majestic, great, glorious, incomparably wonderful. We pray that your goodness and your greatness would be displayed, Lord, in our speech, in our thinking, in our living. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would make us transparent windows through which your glory shines into the world. Father, may your name be exalted in our lives as individuals and exalted in this community. You are great and glorious, and we pray that you would be displayed as such. Father, we also pray that your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven. Uh, we ask that everything in our lives that contradicts your good and holy will would give way to obedience. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and wisdom to repent of unrighteousness and walk in your ways, in wisdom, in self-control, in love, humility, and in a boundless confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use your word today to produce in us a greater conformity to the will of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Those of you who have kids in sports uh, have probably seen a variety of different coaching styles, some more effective than others. On one occasion, I was on, on the sideline I was watching my son James play soccer, and I heard a grandmother turn to what I guess was her uh, daughter, the, the mother of the kid playing on the field, and she said, look at the way that coach speaks to the kids. That coach really knows how to speak to them. And she was right. This particular coach was clear in his directions. There was a firmness. There was also a gentleness. When he would correct the kid, it would never just be, don't do that. It was, hey, that was a great move, bud, <laughs> but uh, shoot it the other way, right? Uh, th there was correction and encouragement. There was never a hint of irritability, always uh, self-controlled, always patient in the way he administered correction. You could tell the kids loved the coach, loved to play for him. There was a joy in competition because of his wise exercise of authority and leadership. Not all kids were so lucky. Uh, there were other coaches. Uh, one in particular stands out who was... Uh, one of these aggressive, win-at-all-costs types, you know, uh, very critical, what are you doing? Pay attention, move faster, right? 
uh, there wasn't the same encouragement. There was irritability. And that, that kind of authority is suffocating, stifling. You don't play with the same joy and freedom when that's your coach. And so as you observe these different coaches and their styles, you see the difference between good exercise of authority and bad exercise of authority and leadership. We know from other spheres of life, when, when we have a good leader who knows how to wield authority well, people flourish in that environment. When you have a good boss at work, that cares not only for outcomes but for the employees, things go well, right? Uh, this is true in the home. When there's a, a faithful leader, a godly husband, father, good mom, the people under that authority flourish. Scripture makes it clear that when God's king is on the throne, life is good. When there is good leadership, life is good. Psalm 72, 16 through 17 describes the blessings that come to the people of God when they have God's appointed leader over them. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name, the king's name, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So God's people are blessed in the king and through the king. Uh, what we see in this passage in chapters 4 and 5 of this book is the multi-sided wisdom of Solomon. Uh, we saw in chapter 3 how God gave him wisdom in the courtroom to be able to take a hard case and look past appearances and get to the truth of the matter. So he has judicial wisdom. But in these chapters, uh, we see that Solomon's wisdom is multifaceted. He has administrative wisdom, wisdom in intellectual matters. He can compose proverbs and uh, songs. He has wisdom in diplomacy, wisdom in accomplishing the tasks that God has given to him. And as we look at the, this multi-sided wisdom of Solomon, we also see what it's like to be under the rule, under the authority of this kind of king. And to give you a sneak preview of where I'm going, life is very good under this kind of king. But we'll get there. First thing we see about Solomon is that he has great wisdom in matters administrative. For those less gifted in matters administrative, this is an enviable gift set, um, we see his ability to arrange his kingdom such that people flourish under his authority. Uh, he selects wisely in the people that he appoints to prominent positions. So the kingdom goes well. If you look at the officers in the first uh, couple of verses of chapter 4, it's interesting that the first person mentioned is a priest. Right? Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Perhaps chief priest. If you compare that to 2 Samuel chapter 8, where you get the same kind of list that describes uh, David, King David's uh, reign and his administration, uh, you don't have the priest listed first, you have the commander-in-chief, the commander of the army. And perhaps what is indicated in this contrast is what the priorities of these two reigns were. David was the warrior on the battlefield, fighting the enemies of God's people and bringing victory through warfare. That was his one of his chief contributions. Solomon's rule is different, though. There is peace established as a result of his father's triumphs. Uh, Solomon is going to focus on the composition of songs and proverbs. And more importantly still, he is going to build the temple uh, where God will be worshipped. And so there is a different agenda, a different priority for this rule, and we see that for, from the list here. Uh, we're told of a recorder we're not 100% sure what a recorder did in the court of the king, 
It seems that he was a liaison between the king and the people. The king would pronounce a decree, and he would bring that to the, peop- uh, to the people. Uh, he may have also been responsible for decorum, ceremony, protocol within the palace. Uh, he was the one who knew the rules, uh, what propriety required, and he was the one to consult on these types of matters. Uh, but these are the men that Solomon has appointed. And at this stage in Israel's history, it does seem that the government is becoming, in terms of its administration, more centralized and a little more sophisticated than was true in the days of Saul and even in the days of, uh, of David. Solomon establishes uh, 12 districts, divides up his kingdom into 12 districts, and these are going to be uh, sources of revenue. The people will be taxed according to the district that they're in, and he establishes 12 governors over these districts so that the revenue stream will, will come. Unless we think when we hear about centralized government, the consolidation of power, that this was a tyrannical, uh, life-taking government. I don't know if those are your, your instincts, but when I hear about government centralization, government, that's my flinch. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, but lest we think that, verse 20 makes it clear that as a result of this wise administration, the people of God flourish. They eat and drink and, and are happy. And a lot of these, the taxes, the provisions that are raised go into providing food for Solomon and his court. I mean, they could eat 10 fat oxen. This was the daily uh, diet, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. Uh, A core was something like between 40 gallons to 110 gallons. So massive quantities of food streaming into Solomon's uh, palace every single day to his residence. And uh, scholars speculate that this amount of food could have fed something like 14,000 to 32,000 people, in case you're wondering. Uh, A substantial amount of food. And the picture here is, again, not of an oppressive, overbearing government, but of a a people who are prospering because the kingdom is wisely administered. There's prosperity for the king, and there's prosperity for the kingdom. And we see Solomon's wisdom in administrative matters in appointing the right people who bring order Uh, to the kingdom and sophistication to the kingdom's administration. Uh, Administrative gifts are the less conspicuous and perhaps exciting gifts, right? People who are good at administration are usually in the background pulling strings, getting things done. Uh, But while they may not be as conspicuous, they are very significant, very important if life is going to flourish. People with administrative skill are able to take general ideas and realize them practically by considering all the different details and all of the practical obstacles that need to be overcome. Where there's a good administrator in a household, that household flourishes, things move smoothly. Same thing in a church, praise God, when he uh, provides people who are administratively gifted. It's true in society. I always appreciate this gift uh, when, as a family, we, we undertake a, you know, a picnic or a hike or whatever. We just get out together. And my instinct is, okay, the weather's nice. Everybody in the van. Let's go. We need a carpe diem. Seize the day, guys. Uh, but of course, you know, an hour into the hike, you're, you're hungry. Didn't think about this. You guys hungry? Dad, I'm hungry. Well, let's just enjoy the hike. Let the hike nourish you. Uh, <laughs> right? But, it, but it's moments like that where I appreciate Stephanie's forethought. Because when I go, oh, you're hungry. I, I don't know. She takes out her bag. She's like, oh, yeah, no, here are the snacks. Oh, it looks like it's going to rain. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I packed some extra clothes and extra socks. Here we go. We're ready for this. Oh, your, your, your hands are uh, dirty. We don't, you don't know how to clean them. Well, here's, here's some hand sanitizer. 
right? It's so nice when, when you have in a family, in a, in a church setting, people who have those instincts, who think in advance, who make preparations, think about the details. Everybody else has a smooth time when you have people like that. So it is a gift from God, and Solomon uh, exhibits great wisdom in these kinds of matters, administrative matters. But he also exhibits great wisdom in scholarship, intellectual wisdom. Uh, that's what we see at the end of chapter 4. Uh, he had unparalleled wisdom in the ancient Near East. Not even the Egyptians had a guy like Solomon. Not, the surrounding nations didn't have someone as wise as Solomon. Uh, he was a gifted writer of songs. Typically don't associate uh, singing and the composition of songs with kingliness, but that's what the text does. A thousand uh, and five songs he composed uh, I don't know if he composed the melody. Was he a gifted musician or did, did he just write the lyrics? We'll assume the best, uh, given just this massive wisdom that God has given him. 3,000 Proverbs, many of which, incidentally, we find in the book, book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs are short, pithy sayings uh, that take a general truth and distill it into a short statement. One writer put, uh, says that Proverbs are short statements based on long experience. Part of the pleasure of Proverbs is you see yourself in the world you inhabit more clearly. Frankly, this is one of the pleasures of reading literature, too. Uh, we want eyes. It's not enough for us to see the world just from our vantage point. We want to be able to see it from other perspectives. And when you read the Proverbs, you go, ah, that's what I'm like. You know, uh, those, the proverb will say something like, the wise person is cool of spirit. It is the glory of man to overlook a provocation. You read that and you go, ouch. I wish I had more wisdom there. I, I frequently play the fool card in precisely that kind of situation. But as you read the Proverbs, you, you grow in your understanding of yourself and of the world. God gave Solomon wisdom to help his people better understand themselves, better, better understand the world that they live in. And his wisdom was so great that the nations would stream into Jerusalem to hear the king's wisdom, to, stand, uh, to sit at the feet of Solomon and to hear the wisdom that God had given to him. What we see is that wisdom is attractive. It's beautiful. Insight, understanding, uh, has a way of drawing people to itself. Israel was always intended by God not simply to be blessed by itself without disregard to the nations. Uh, God had always intended for his people to be a beacon of light in a dark world. The nations were always meant to stream into Jerusalem, into Israel, to stand in awe of the wisdom of God's people. And we see a partial fulfillment of that in this passage. Because of Solomon's great wisdom, the nations are coming among the people of God to stand in awe. As God's people today who are under the rule of King Jesus, we ought also to make our king and his wisdom attractive in the eyes of the nations. And as we live wisely and speak wisely, uh, that wisdom will have the effect of attracting people to Jesus. Again, it's not that we in ourselves are wise or impressive. It's that when we embody the wisdom of our king, we become transparent windows through which the world sees Jesus and is drawn to his beauty. We need in the first instance to be wise in our speech. When God's people immerse themselves in the wisdom of Holy Scripture day after day, and they meditate on the law of the Lord, when God's revelation is our delight and we are steeped in it, then when we interact with outsiders, we will have something wise and fresh and life-giving to say. I don't know if you've had that experience, right? 
where you speak to someone who may not be a believer, and you, you know, explain to them what the Bible says about parenting and goals of parenting, for example. And they go, wow, I never thought about it like that. Right? God's wisdom helps us to see the world more clearly. And so we commend the beauty of the king uh, through wise speech that is, that's marinated in Scripture. At the same time, we commend the king. We make him attractive in the eyes of others through beautiful living. We are meant to embody the wisdom of the king in the way that we live. When we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, we live skillfully and effectively. We're diligent at work. We know how to restrain our speech. We serve others. We know how to use money, right? They're, they're skill for life. Uh, we know how to manage our households. Husbands and wives know how to relate to each other in a way that's harmonious. Parents know how to shape their kids. And when the world sees that wisdom of Jesus Christ embodied in the lives of his people, both individually and corporately, it's attractive. It makes the king look good and delightful. In uh, Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, uh, verse 3 and following, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That, here's the purpose, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, when the household is functioning according to the wisdom of God, outsiders will not look down upon the faith, look down upon Christ. Indeed, as he goes on to say in chapter 2, such wise behavior, management of the household, adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. It makes the truth of the gospel, it makes Jesus attractive in the eyes of others. Now, when we're not living wisely, when our households are in disarray, when marriages are falling apart, when, we're, when we have massive debt because of undisciplined spending, when we're sloppy in our work, when we're neglecting our kids and letting screens raise them, when we live foolishly, we're not commending the beauty of the king. There's not, nobody looks at that kind of life and goes, man, that guy shows up to work an hour late every day. I want to be like that guy. What is he doing right? Right? Uh, we commend Christ, however, when we walk according to his wisdom, when we're faithful in these divergent spheres of life. So wisdom is not just about you. You flourish, obviously, if you're wise, but it's about making Jesus look good in the eyes of others. Wisdom is attractive. I would say it's especially attractive in, this, in our cultural moment. Things seem to be crumbling all around us uncertainty, chaos, right? Uh, there's a crisis of confidence among parents. What, what should I be doing with these kids? How do I even, what goals should I be aiming at? Uh, marriages are falling apart. You hear stories of grandparents having to raise their grandchildren because uh, parents are simply abdicating responsibility, right? Uh, it's increasingly impressive if somebody shows up to work sober and on time consistently, right? Like that's a striking thing. This person displays great wisdom. Uh, in being able to do that. I think wisdom is especially striking in our cultural moment. When we are able, in submission to the commands of Christ, to live wise and orderly lives, we are uniquely positioned to commend the beauty and wisdom of the king. Wisdom is attractive, and it draws the nations to the king. Again, it's not our wisdom and beauty. It's his, mediated through us. So Solomon exhibits wisdom in intellectual matters. He can compose proverbs and songs. He also exhibits wisdom in statecraft, diplomacy. Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, was on friendly terms with David, uh, Sol Solomon's father, who was king before him. And that positive relationship 
continues in Solomon's reign. Uh, Tyre was this island kingdom that was known for its uh, trade. It had this impressive fleet that would go through the Mediterranean world, and it would bring goods from one place to another, significant kingdom. And so Hiram reaches out to Solomon when he becomes king, sends his envoys to establish positive relationships, and Solomon establishes an alliance with Hiram that's mutually beneficial to both kingdoms. As a result, there is peace in his day. Uh, wise kings know how to conduct their affairs and enter into partnerships with other kingdoms in a way that brings peace to the kingdom. And more than that, God had given Solomon a task. Solomon's responsibility was to build a temple for the Lord, a centralized place of worship. And God gives Solomon the wisdom to discern how best to do that. Solomon realizes that the moment is ripe to begin construction. He realizes that there is peace on every side, no warfare, no battles. Uh, this alliance with Hiram gives him potential access to the resources that Hiram has. And so Solomon says, hey, you guys are known for uh, your lumber and your, your ability to work with trees. Uh, why don't you give us some of the lumber that we need to build the temple? Isn't it interesting, parenthetically, that Gentiles, outsiders, non-Jews are brought into the construction of God's household? In anticipation, perhaps, of that day when God will draw people from all over the nations into his kingdom. But Hiram is willing. You provide food for my court, and I'll provide all the timber you need to build a place for the house of God. Notice what we see again and again in this passage. The demands of kingship are great. Solomon has to be an, ab an able judge who's able to justify the innocent and condemn the guilty. He has to be an able administrator, a composer of proverbs and songs. He has to have wisdom in statecraft and alliances. He has to have wisdom to get things done, like build a temple. But in all of these ways, these are all things God has called him to do, but in all of these things, God provides abundantly to do what he has called Solomon to do called Solomon to build the temple, and he gives him wisdom to discern how best to organize the workforce of Israel to accomplish it, how to enter into an alliance with Hiram to bring it to pass. This reveals about God is that God, yes, calls his people to high things, great things, difficult things, but he is also the God who provides the wisdom and skill that they need to effectively carry out their God-given responsibilities. He doesn't tell us, do this, and then leave us to our own devices. He is the God who richly provides the wisdom and skill and effectiveness that we need to be faithful to him in the various responsibilities of life, administration, work, raising children, marriage. In all of these areas, God gives to his people the wisdom that they need to be faithful to him. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Our responsibilities are great and bigger than we are, but God doesn't leave us to tackle them alone. He provides. Now, the question is, the crucial question is, how does he provide wisdom? How does God give wisdom? According to Scripture, he gives wisdom through a variety of different means. The first ingredient in wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. Some of you mumbled it, I could tell. Uh, well done. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Beautiful, skillful living begins not with technique, not with a how-to book. It begins with the greatness of God. If you want to be wise, the first thing you need to do is stand in awe of the Lord. 
to see his greatness and to see all of life in light of his greatness, to worship him, to give yourself without abandon to his will, to hunger and thirst for the Lord himself. Where that vertical element is in place, wisdom will follow. Wisdom is not the same thing as cunning. You can be very cunning, very skillful at getting what you want, manipulating people, making money. You can be very cunning and very foolish, according to Scripture. Wisdom is not measured primarily by getting good outcomes. It is measured by a heart that is right before the Lord. When God is the center of the solar system like the sun, all of the other planets orbit around it. Without the sun in the solar system, everything's chaos. All the planets shoot every which way. The essence of wisdom is to stand in awe of the greatness of God and to live all of life out of that posture. Number two, we obtain wisdom by asking for it, by praying for it. We saw that that's what Solomon did. Solomon, what can I give you? Lord, give me wisdom. And God abundantly answers that. And he delights to answer that prayer. God is wise and he wants his people to be wise. Why should we doubt that he would want to bestow wisdom and skill? James 1.5 if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Isn't that an amazing statement? If you need wisdom for the varied responsibilities of life, ask, and the Lord is pleased to give it. Ask. Number three, meditation on the word of God makes us wise. Solomon 119.99. I'm sorry, did I say Solomon? Psalm. Psalm 119.99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. When day by day we drink deeply from the clear waters of God's word, when we reflect on it and consider what every page of scripture says about our Lord and his will, we become wise. Our instincts become sound. We obtain insight for life. Number, t number four, we obtain wisdom through observation and reflection. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone, a stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Notice how he, he gets that insight. He stops, he observes, he reflects. We gain wisdom by having our eyes open, paying attention to what's happening around us, asking questions. Why do they respond like that? And reflecting on our experience. And through observation, reflection, thoughtfulness, God imparts wisdom. And five, we gain wisdom through advice and counsel from others. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept, accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Talk to people who are more experienced, more seasoned than you are, and benefit from their wise counsel and judgment. An extension of that is reading books, right? What are you doing when you read a book? Well, you're, you're trying to get wisdom from somebody who's maybe further along and more effective in a certain sphere than you are. But what I want you to see, here's something that I'm, in laying all of this out, I'm, I'm trying to correct a misguided understanding of how God imparts wisdom. Some people operate with the zap view of spiritual illumination. I pray for wisdom and then boom, everything's clear. I see that I should do this and not that. Move to Rome and not Paris, right? That's not, generally speaking, 
how it works. Of course, God can do it that way. He's the Lord. Uh, But generally speaking, God imparts wisdom in decision-making through the ordinary process of praying, asking for it, reflecting, thinking, weighing your options, pros, cons lists, counsel with other people, discussions. Uh, Those are means by which the Lord imparts wisdom, and we shouldn't view them as somehow less spiritual than the zap approach to wisdom, right? God ordinarily imparts wisdom through thoughtfulness, reflection, getting advice from other people, weighing your options, prayerfully considering it, and then making a decision. So what I want to guard against is maybe an overly spiritualized and unbiblical understanding of decision-making and how God imparts wisdom. Bottom line is God delights to give wisdom. The problem is not that God is stingy in the bestowal of wisdom. The problem, more often than not, is that we're reluctant to seek it. The easiest thing in the world is to do things the way you've always done them. It's familiar, it's comfortable. My parents parented this way, this is the way I parent. This is the way we've always done it in marriage. This is the way I've always done my job. Status quo is is comfortable. It's comfortable, but not necessarily effective or wise. Part of what we need to to do is to get a better sense of the magnitude of the responsibilities that God has given us in this life. Consider marriage. If you're a wife, God has called you to be a helper to your husband, to use your creativity, your gifts, your wisdom to help him fulfill his God-given responsibility. That is a weighty and significant calling for which you need wisdom. If you're a husband, consider what God has called you to do. He's called you to care for your wife's spiritual well-being. She should be flourishing spiritually under your authority and leadership. That's a weighty thing. And if we reflect on the magnitude of the responsibilities God has given to us, our response should be, Lord, I, I need wisdom. I can't just intuit the right thing to do. I need to pause and reflect and consider and seek counsel. One thing I would challenge all of you to do is to consider your God-given responsibilities as spouses, parents, employees, employers. And instead of just going with the flow and what's comfortable, seek from the Lord wisdom to be increasingly faithful. Pray, read, take counsel, make observations, grow practically in wisdom in these areas. Don't just go with the flow. Again, the problem is not that the Lord won't bestow greater and increasing wisdom. The problem is often we're lazy in seeking it. That's the way we do it. It's comfortable. No need to reflect further. Solomon would challenge us to reconsider and give more thought to our ways. So Solomon is spectacularly wise. You've seen this, yes? We've gotten that. Uh, His wisdom is a multifaceted, multi-angled wisdom. Uh, And he is God's chosen king over his people. Now, the question I started out with, this is the central thing I want to underscore today is what is it like to be under the rule of this kind of king? What is it like to be under this kind of authority? And uh, we have one of my favorite descriptions of life under God's king uh, anywhere in Scripture. We're told in verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. Now, this is a fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, that your descendants will be like the sand of the sea or by the sea, And that promise of God has been realized at this stage in her history under Solomon. But notice that the realization of that promise comes through the king. And then, here's the statement that I was referring to. 
we are told that the people of God ate and drank and were happy. That simple statement says so much, doesn't it, about life under the king. Life under the king is characterized by prosperity and abundance. There was feasting. Uh, You don't get the sense that the Israelites were scraping by under Solomon's reign. You get the sense that they were abounding materially. And not just materially, but also spiritually. They were glad of heart. They were happy. Uh, Morale was high in the kingdom. Communities were strong. There was delight and gladness of heart among God's people. And then look at verse 25. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Isn't that idyllic? Every man in his own garden under his vine and fig tree. Uh, scholars note that it's, it's likely that Solomon is being compared to Adam. And not just compared, but that he's being viewed as a kind of second Adam. Did you notice that language about the animals? That Solomon uh, had an interest in the creation order and the different kinds of animals? What other character in the Bible exhibits an interest in categorizing and naming animals? It's Adam, right? Part of his exercise of dominion over God's creation is understanding the structure of that creation. And in the same way, because of Adam's fall, the ground is cursed. It's not fruitful. It's barren and sterile. But under Solomon's reign, it's a kind of second Eden. When, when the good king reigns, it's, it's like even creation is healed of the curse and everything bears fruit and flourishes. When the king reigns, the curse of sin is taken away and even creation is healed under the hands of the king. What scripture is showing us is this is what life is like under God's appointed king. Under his reign, human life sprouts and blossoms like flowers open to the sun. Human life reaches its culmination and fulfillment when God's king is on the throne. Life is very good. There is abundance, fullness, peace, prosperity under the rule of King Jesus. Now my question to you is, In your own mind, when you picture obedience to King Jesus, is this your mental picture of life under his rule? When you you think of submitting to Jesus, do you see life flourishing in every dimension? Do you think of life being enhanced? Or do you think of of submission to him as something constricting, something that saps you of life? What happens to a person when they believe that doing the will of Jesus is right, but they're not fully persuaded that doing the will of Jesus is good and life-giving? That's possible, isn't it? Jesus is king, I should obey him. But they're not persuaded deep down that what the king says is the path to life. Well, what happens in that situation? Obedience is often half-hearted, joyless, reluctant, and partial. Because in our heart of hearts, we think gladness is to be found elsewhere. But here's the amazing thing. Every human being was created by God with a desire for gladness and joy. What Scripture teaches is that our desire for gladness and unconditional obedience to Jesus are not two separate things. They're the same thing. In submission to Jesus Christ, there is gladness and joy and fullness of life. And when you internalize that, you start to pursue obedience from the heart, not just because you have to, but because this truly is the path of gladness. This truly is the path of life. 
In your heart, is that how you view the commands of Jesus and the will of Christ for your life? Not simply something you have to obey, but something that is intrinsically delightful because it causes life to flourish. Now, I know some of you are squirming. There might be some misgivings. Is that prosperity teaching? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe one or two of you. Uh, you know, there's a lot in Scripture that talks about self-renunciation and suffering and difficulty. What about that? And of course, you're right. Jesus has a great deal to say about taking up our cross and following him. Uh, there will be times when saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to obedience, means saying no to some earthly good, like comfort, ease, pleasure, rest, money, a long-standing relationship. That's absolutely right. But you need to understand that the highest good and the highest happiness is not having perfect circumstances in the world. There's a deeper gladness, and that deeper gladness is walking in close fellowship with Jesus, walking in his ways. Isn't that what we see in the New Testament? Remember the uh, missionaries Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi. Uh, they've been unjustly beaten. They're thrown into prison. And rather than being crushed by the injustice of it all and mistreatment, what are they doing? They're singing the praises of God at midnight. At about midnight, Paul and si Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, Acts 16.25. The early church father, Tertullian, says, the legs feel nothing in the stalks when the heart is in heaven. Their legs are in the stalks. They don't pay attention to their misery because their heart is in heaven. There's a deeper joy than just having circumstances, external circumstances go your way. That deeper joy is walking with Jesus and walking in submission to his will. Do you believe that life under his rule is good? Not just right, but good and life-enhancing. Now, it is important at this stage to make a clarification. The way God's rule over his people is manifest changes at different stages in history, in the history of salvation. So in the Old Testament, uh, Israel was a nation state with physical borders, and he ruled directly over his people with an earthly king who was responsible to maintain justice, but also ensure the right worship of the Lord. That is not the present form of God's kingdom. Right now, Jesus is Lord over all, he is seated at the right hand of God, uh, but his people, the church, are not a nation state. They are strewn about all the nations of the world, and they are under his authority, but as uh, citizens of earthly nations. And this, recognizing this distinction is important, because whereas in the Old Covenant, in Israel's history, blessing was more immediately tied to prosperity in the land, right, freedom from enemies, lots of food, that kind of thing, in the present manifestation of the kingdom, the blessings are in the first instance spiritual in nature. Now, those spiritual blessings of the kingdom, when we experience them, it produces actual tangible good out there in the world, but the blessings of the present reign of Jesus Christ is fundamentally spiritual. So, to be under his rule in the present, under the reign of King Jesus, means that, for instance, we experience a clean conscience, the Greeks had an expression that when you're guilty, your, your, your guilty conscience spits fire in your face. Everybody here knows the moral anguish of knowing you've done wrong, that pang of guilt. What joy it is to know that however deep you have fallen, whatever wretched things you have done, there is in Jesus Christ, through his shed blood forgiveness, for all of it. All of it has been cleansed. To be under the reign of Jesus means that you have a clean conscience before God, peace with God, 
To be under the reign of Jesus means having joy. It's interesting, if you go to Romans 14, Paul talks about the kingdom. He says, one of the things that characterizes membership in the kingdom is joy. It's not about eating and drinking fundamentally. It's about joy in Christ, joy through the Holy Spirit, the joy of communion with the Lord. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be under Christ's rule means that you're part of his people. And you experience his love, not just immediately through the Spirit, but immediately or through the church. Have you ever had the experience of speaking to a brother or sister, and you find, find yourself strangely energized and encouraged, and you sense not just their love for you, but somehow through them the love of Jesus for you? Uh, that's what kingdom life is like. You, you know the love of the Savior through his people. Uh, to be under the reign of Jesus means you have hope. You're never without hope. There's a better world coming. Death is not the end. Uh, the present blessings of Christ's rule far surpass it, all of the earthly blessings we might know. Like, what good is it to be wealthy, successful, healthy, prosperous, by every earthly measure, but not have a relationship with the Lord, not have a peaceful conscience, not have the hope of everlasting life, not know the fellowship of his people? So I even in the present, uh, we rejoice in life under the life-giving reign of Jesus. But of course, this is not the whole story, is it? The kingdom is here. The rule of Jesus is here. But one day, it will be consummated. Everything will be submitted to the king. And the Old Testament prophets, using the imagery of this, pro of this passage, speak of, about that final form of the kingdom. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Did you notice that imagery? They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Micah 4, 3-4. Zechariah 3.10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. When the king returns, and he will return, uh, all things will be put to right. Wickedness will crawl back into its hole, will be banished from that kingdom forever. There will be abundance. There will be prosperity. There will be every kind of joy. Creation will be healed of the curse. The second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, will reverse the curses of sin, renew creation, and all things will be put right. What we see during this golden age in Israel's history is a forced taste or a glimpse of that future kingdom. When everybody's eating and drinking and is happy, living under their own vine, that gives us a picture of the kingdom that is still to come. And the message is simple. It's going to be unbelievably good everything will be renewed and made right. Uh, sometimes our picture of the world to come is sort of, you know, we, we enjoy this life, and we're not quite so sure that the, the life to come is going to be that great. But the encouragement of this passage is that the world to come is incomparably better than the highest pleasures that we'll ever know in this life. That's the kingdom that we as God's people anticipate and look forward to. And when that's your hope, and you know that's your future destiny, you can face anything, can't you? You can face anything with cheerfulness in your heart, Regardless of what your circumstances are, there's always a reason for hope because the king is coming 
And that glorious future perfect kingdom is coming. So regardless of where you are today, you have every reason to be hopeful about the future. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give thanks that you have graciously brought us from death to life and have claimed us as your own. Uh, we have been the recipients of your many mercies as our king, and we do confess, Lord. Those of us who have walked with you uh, and have known your ways with us, Lord, we do confess that you have been gracious, good, and that your reign has been life-giving over us. Amen.